0: Good morning everyone. It's so good together here and uh, all around uh, Singapore. We know uh, the holidays are on. You know why? Because church attendance has fallen. <laughs> uh, lots of Singaporeans have gone for holidays, and, uh, but the faithful remain. And uh, thank you for coming. Today's uh, sermon is to try and attempt to summarize what we did in the Psalm series, but more so in the three series that we did on uh, depression and anxiety and addictions, and to explain why. So, and the final part of the sermon, I'll be touching on the issue and the problem and the challenge of suicide. So, it's entitled Inglorious versus Glorious Living. So, let's begin our time by exploring this. And the first thing we want to explore is can you tell the difference between genuine and genuine imitation? Can you tell the difference between genuine something, product, and genuine imitation. So I gave you uh, somebody showed that to me a, a few times. Can you tell the difference between this genuine wallet and an imitation of this? I look high, I look low. I can't choose a Louis Vuitton handbag. Can you tell the difference to the naked eye, to the untrained eye? We cannot. And then it goes on to other things. Can you tell the difference where you buy a, a bottle of perfume? It is. Authentic, it is inauthentic and so I read this in preparing for this sermon can you tell the difference between fake and real pills and drugs for your health and so fake drugs kill more than 250 children a year and some of the ingredients going into fake drugs include printer ink pain, and arsenic have been found in some drugs to treat life-threatening illnesses so it's not as simple as a medicines here expensive let's google let's buy them because you could be poisoning yourself and so if we go down this track i mean the ability to tell the difference between a wallet a handbag that's a nothing the ability to tell the difference between a genuine or genuine imitation of something you put into your body that's vitally important and i hope that you can resonate with me as we begin our time to spot the difference is a life and death necessity. The ability to spot the difference is a life and death necessity. So I'll just take that thought and explore this with you for the rest of our time together. Can you spot the difference between a world created and designed by God versus a world designed by us? Created by us. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation does present this, especially in terms of the two cities, Babylon, a man-made city, and Jerusalem, the city of God. So let's take a look at Babylon, a world created by us. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I, John, John the Apostle, he was on the island of Patmos. I saw another angel coming down from the heavens. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, full of man made idolatries. So, from God's perspective, when he looks at the shining towers of Babylon's, then of Rome when John was writing this, and the shining towers that we create today from the Dubais to everywhere in in the world, he looks and he sees a world full of man-made idolatries. And idolatry is very simply our determination not to worship the true and living God and our determination to worship our man-made idols. The work of our wisdom, the work of our hands. The two are totally different. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. And so God will speak about adultery as instead of giving life and love and devotion to me, they have given life and devotion to the wrong persons and the wrong things. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, in that sense political adultery, because politics is power. And then the merchants of the earth grew rich from excessive luxuries, economic adultery, Meaning that we think by the wisdom of our minds and the strength of our hands, we create wealth. Nonsense. Apart from God and His grace giving you every breath, apart from God's grace, you and I create nothing. And you just need to be reminded by some part of your body breaking down to know that you and me are not autonomous. So these are our man-made idolatries expressed in adulteries. That instead of worshipping God, we worship the work of God. Of our minds and our hands. So, a tale of two cities that we tell often here in our churches. ARPC Adam, ARPC Bishan. Babylon on the left hand side is self made. It is then self ruled. We make up our own laws. And then it's self pleasing and it's self glorifying. We call it our man made utopias, our man made paradise. On the other hand, we have Jerusalem. And beginning with the Old Testament, it was God conceived, God created. God ruled by his law, and God glorifying. So this is a picture of heaven. And by the time Jesus comes, he announces and prepares us, as now captured in Revelation 18, for a new heavens and a new earth, with a new Jerusalem no longer stuck there in in the Middle East, a new Jerusalem, a new city of God. And this is purchased by his loving sacrifice, by his suffering, his resurrection, and his ascension to sit at God's right hand. So a tale of two cities, Jerusalem, a world created and redeemed finally by Jesus. In Revelation chapter 7, this passage you know we know well, because in many Christian circles around the world, we sing this song, Hallelujah to the Lamb. This is where it's come from. After this, I look, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count. Have you ever looked at a crowd and you said, my goodness, it's uncountable. So I just go come back from a short holiday in japan last month and at some of the train stations you you think our train stations are crowded right you get out of a tokyo station you get out of a station at osaka or anywhere boy that's crowded that's really really crowded and jam-packed this is even more crowded than this so when we speak about oh the church is growing the church is growing the 500 people here this is not crowded can you tell people this is not crowded never mind you're not following it's all right From every nation, from every tribe, from every people, every language, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. This is the new thing in the new Jerusalem. The middle of all the whole universe, the middle of this whole thing called the new heavens and new earth, is the throne of the Lamb of God with the throne of God. They were wearing white robes, white robes having been washed in the blood of Jesus. Interesting, right? You wash it in red, it comes out white, a sign of purity, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs not to ourselves. You cannot save yourself from yourself. You cannot save yourself from the devil. You cannot save yourself from every moment of temptation. You can't save yourself from sin. The power of sin and the consequences of sin. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits where? On the throne, and to who? And to the Lamb. And then it goes on. All the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, the elders representing the Old Testament and the New Testament believers. They fell down on their faces before the throne, worship God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory. Wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. I do not know what Bible verses you find challenging to memorize, but I find such a verse challenging, verse 12. You know why? I can never get the sequence of the memory right. So which one should I say first? Power or honour or glory or majesty or authority? Never mind lah, it's all the same. Really? They all belong to the same family of words It is all for the glory and the praise and the worship of God, but each of them is worth exploring. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength are due to no one else but God and God alone. And that takes you straight back to why God created you and me in His image. He didn't create you and me in His image only to be a runaway train A runaway train will be dangerous to yourself and dangerous to others. And the last time you check, in your sinfulness, you're dangerous to yourself and dangerous to others, in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. That's why you arrive here slightly damaged from a conversation you shouldn't have had with your wife or your husband or your father or your mother or your child. We are danger to ourselves and a danger to others apart from being saved by God. And so God created us to worship Him, glorify Him, live according to His word, fulfill His will, that has come to pass finally to the finish and the perfect work of Jesus and His love for us. So to God belongs this. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Here is the focus. Why is the Lamb the focus? He's their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Sounds very familiar, right? Sounds like the Psalms and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, what does that tell you? Let me show you the next passage. We meet a God who says this, and then in Revelation 21, the second last chapter of the book, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What do you know about this present, fallen, sinful world and age and order whatever you do not know please take note that from God's perspective it is full of it is full of tears especially for the people of God as we pilgrimage and journey from a world laden with Satan and sin no more death everyone seated here four or five hundred of us are going to die that's a prophetic statement don't you think? makes me a very good prophet you want to turn to the person next to you and do a reality check? Just do a reality check with them? I'm going to die one day. That's not a conversation we like to have. There'll be no more death for all 500 of us here at Bishan. All 500 of us at Adam Road. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. For why? The old order of Babylon, man ruling himself, herself, being kings and queens of your own life and thinking that can be lived with impunity for eternity without repercussion, those days are over. Because the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago is the coming with a warning. You want to live your life your way? That's the end. Because I've come to usher in the kingdom of God and I am that king. We meet a God who is determined to be worshipped. From creation to redemption, but at creation, at the fall, we said to this God who created all things in heaven and all things on earth, He created us as the epicenter to rule the world on His behalf. We said to God, we want the rule, but we don't want you. That's the essence of rebellion. We want the rule, but we don't want the ruler. So we'll be autonomous. But in the end, through Jesus' finished work, all beings, did you notice? Angelic beings and human beings will worship God and the Lamb. The reversal of Babylon, the fake paradise and the fake utopia that we live in. So that is the big canvas that we preach and teach and live all things as God's people. Beginning with our churches here at AOPC at Adam and Bishan. So where has that taken us? I quoted this a while ago but probably forgotten. In America's experience of tears, it's a country addicted to this thing. From the introduction of OxyContin in 1996, more than 20 over years ago, Macy, Beth Macy, traces how America embraced a medical culture that overtreated with painkillers. Because life is so painful, not just in America, everywhere around the world. You know what's the main thing we try to... To experience utopia, utopia must be painless. Utopia must be problem-free and pain-free. That is paradise. And that's how we get into all our addictions, to run away from the perplexities and the complexities of relationships, of brokenness, of selfishness, of sin. And so we dull ourselves to be pain-free. In some of the same distressed communities featured in a best-selling book, the unemployed use painkillers to numb the pain of joblessness and pay the bills. While privileged kids from middle class and upper middle class, they dial themselves in cool de and school corners with, with their drugs. And friends, just in case you think it's out there, it's us. We think as long as we can create a world that is problem-free and pain-free must be equals to utopia. No, utopia must always have God. If you don't have God there you can dull yourself with with all kinds of drugs, it will still not be heaven because the problem of Satan and sin is not dealt with. And it goes on. The only book to fully chart the devastating um, opioid crisis in America, that's what it is. A harrowing, deeply compassionate dispatch from the heart of a national emergency. So just in case you think this is a million miles away, I was talking to someone, ministering to him and Try, he was trying to escape the pain of his life. He says, no, I've, I've got friends, my, my colleagues, we're all working in quite good places now. And um, he just said to me, bro, don't, don't worry so much about life. Why don't we just take a weekend, fly off to America and do this and then come back? Why don't we just, don't worry so much about the pain of, and stress of life in Singapore. Fly off somewhere and do some of this and come back. Nobody will know. Is that how you're going to live? That's an increasing number. You ask Pastor Jeff and Hanel, the men that we minister to from a drug background, they go to drug rehab, they come and join us in BASK, Brothers and Sisters Keepers, very, very important ministry that God has given to us. In the 60s and 70s, the main people addicted to drugs were the lower class, the blue-collar workers who had absentee parents. Today, if you put your finger on the pulse, everywhere around the world, and we are not excluded, there'll be a higher and higher percentage of us in the middle class and the educated ones who might be doing this. Not here, because you'll be caught here and you'll be troubled here. But I could always fly out there because I'm earning a lot of money and I do not know what to do with this money. And that's the world that we live in, in search of the pain-free life, simplistically equal to utopia. So our man-made utopia, to understand ourselves with the series that we just did, I think one way is to understand there's a fallen part of me and my fallenness then there's a smaller portion called my sinfulness and then there's my weaknesses what do I mean by that? fallenness refers to our solidarity of sin right? with Adam we inherited this DNA from Adam and Eve and so you don't want to fall sick but you'll fall sick you don't want to grow old but you'll grow old you don't want to die but you will die This is our solidarity of sin from the first of the human race who turn against God, use His will against God. So God did not create us to be born, only to get sick, only to grow old and weak, suffer multiple organ failures and then die. Our sicknesses are part of the fall. So when we think through the different areas of our life, it's not as simplistic that depression or anxiety or addictions our spiritual problem we try to approach it from a holistic dimension remember that in the three studies that we did our small groups and also the three sermons that we preach here then our sinfulness is an expression of now if i sin if you sin you can no longer say adam made me do it you can no longer just say satan made me do it because the bible presents if you do the sin you do the time you do the crime you do the time so Psalm 51, David sins against God by stealing his good friend's wife, Bathsheba. He tried to run away from that. He plotted against everybody until God sent Nathan to confront him. And out of that came Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So that was his sinfulness. No No chance to blame Satan. No chance to blame Adam. I know I did it. Nobody forced you to do it. The circumstances could have been pressurizing, but I, David, did this. And so we're not programmed to sin, but we are addicted to self, to self-pleasing, to self-righteousness, to self-sufficiency, and ultimately to self-glory, saving our faces at the expense of God and of loving neighbor. And then there are weaknesses, Not just our fallenness, not just our sinfulness, but our weakness. Now let's say David was, where was he at the time when he was tempted by this? He should have been out at war, prosecuting a war on God's behalf, together with his generals and his men who were willing to lay down their life for God under King David. But he was walking around his palace. He looked, if he was a stronger man as described when he was young, David feared the Lord. He was a man after God's heart. But by the time that happened, he looked and he lusted. And though he found out that was someone else's wife, he still wanted her. What do you call that? Sinfulness and weakness. Because our fallenness, our sinfulness, and then ultimately our weakness, we are weak in different things in different seasons of our life. So some of us are more prone to fear. Some of us are more prone to pride. Some of us are more prone to unforgiveness. Some of us are more prone to worry. Is that part of my fallenness? Is that part of my sinfulness? Is now, through a circumstance that God gives me, part of my weakness? And that's important for us to explore time and again. And so, where does that take us? It just came out in our news yesterday, Channel News Asia. The number of suicides in Singapore last year was close to 400. 397. And close to 400 people took their lives in Singapore. That is more than the number of people who got killed in car accidents. Just to put it in perspective for you. So if we are always telling each other, be careful when you drive, be careful when you walk, how much more do we need to think about this? Even in Christian circles. They found that more men than women take their lives. And the highest spike in the last year's statistics were between the ages of 10 to 29 for men. So put it all together, we have something on our hands here. Something that we cannot irresponsibly deny and sweep under our carpets. Because Christians around the world have also taken their life. And we're going to try to explore this. So I did cover this in our mental wellness seminar that we had as part of the ministry that God has given to us. But those seminars, though well attended, 200 each time, 300 each time, half of them from other churches, I know that the 2,000 of us here, not, many, not all of us attended. So it's important that we hear this messaging across the board. So those who went to that, I, I apologize and ask for your understanding. And this is our effort, my effort, to educate the church as biblically and educate the church in, as holistically so that we deal with our fallenness and our sinfulness and our weaknesses. Biblical perspectives, the pathways to suicide, suicide in the Bible, and pathways out of suicide. Some parts may be a bit, bit technical, but please follow me, and we'll come to the end and then celebrate communion together. Here in Bishan. A characteristic experience of those who walk through this is firstly, they themselves face what we call an incomprehensible darkness in life and then they cannot communicate this pain this darkness that they are going through so i gave the illustration of my late father-in-law mona's dad that um, you know they had a pet dog very good pet dog and and good watchdog and one day my father-in-law saw that it was wounded it was limping and so he got near to try and see what the wound was and to treat it and if you know when animals are hurt Right, So he got close and he, he wasn't thinking very much about it and it sn- the dog snapped at him. The dog's not characteristic like that. It's pretty good. But when we go through pain and we can't communicate it, it's a terrible position to be in. The only reason you see doctors is that you're in pain. Some part of your body is not working. You can communicate it and he or she, through her professional training, makes a very good guess at what you're going through, and then all the tests to confirm the diagnosis. And so when people walk through this time, it is incomprehensible darkness and blackness, and they can't express it. And then will come the suicide ideation that might lead to suicide itself. And so for us as believers, it's a faith crisis. A fatal tragedy has happened And there's an unresolved wreckage. And what is the wreckage? I look around and no one is able to give me the answers. They say for every one person who commits suicide, there are six people who are left in wreckage. That is a very conservative figure, don't you think? For every single one who takes their life, sadly, six. You can multiply that many times over because friends... And friends and acquaintances, people will ask why, what happens now, where do they go? But the most frightening thing is to meet God's silence about this death and this sadness and this tragedy. So we explore suicide in the Bible. If we go for a plain reading of God's Word of Scripture, suicide does break the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not murder, because life is sacred, because life is created by God. So self-murder is still tantamount to murder. And then you find in the New Testament, a passage like this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So can you follow this? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So from John's perspective, when we hate each other in church, in DG groups, it's no small thing. When you can't stare each other in the eye here, it's no small thing. And you still lightly, simplistically presume that you can hate someone, be unforgiving of a brother and sister in Christ, and still be headed straight to heaven, this verse makes you think and ponder. The two things don't go together. Because Jesus came not to hate us, He came to love us. And so for some who hold on to this, what I call the purest view of this, murder and eternal life are mutually exclusive. If murder and eternal life are mutually exclusive, then self-murder and eternal life are mutually exclusive. If you go for a plain reading of scripture, and do not caveat it with what I call wisdom as we live life today, There are five, six instances of suicide in the Bible. Judges 9, 1 Samuel 31, 2 Samuel 17, 2 Kings 16, and Matthew 27. I have no time to explain all the background to this, but can you trust me just to run them through with you and draw the main threads of what we want to learn today? So in Judges 9, it says this, And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, And crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword, kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. So what is that? What is that? There is something there that you must note. And his young man trusts him true, and he died. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. Many dimensions to it. Stay steady with me. 1 Samuel 31, verse 3 to 5. The battle pressed hard now against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Quite similar, badly wounded. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, it's always to the armor-bearer, draw your sword, trust me, true with it, lest the uncircumcised come, lest the non-Israelites come and say, and trust me, true, and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. 2 Samuel 17, 23 When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So obviously he had gone to give counsel. Obviously he had gone, but he was rejected. One kings. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. The final one is the most familiar to us. It is Judas. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver. To who? To his partners, his joint ventures, the chief priests and the elders, and saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. What do you think is the common thread between them? Did you notice the common thread between them is this? That all were set in the context of shame and honour, or honour and shame. And every country, and every culture, every family has a spoken, unspoken, formal, informal, conscious, unconscious, shame and honour framework. And we need to ask ourselves collectively here in Singapore, need to ask ourselves as your families, the Cha family, the Lee family, the Tan family, and the Smith family, what is our honour and shame framework? So we did pray for our P.S.L.D. students. So we got about 60 over students, right, graduating from P.S.L.D. into secondary school, into our youth ministry at basic. So we got to pray for 60 over students. But with 60 of our students... How many parents are there? Quick mathematics, please tell me. 120 plus 60. So about 200 of us are going through this. That's about 10% of ARPC's population. So that is why we must speak about this. So I do not know, I think generally across the board, right, the percentages have gone up and Coach Primary School 100% passes. We rejoice. But for some, it may be below expectations. And it's very important that we think about this so i've shared this many times but just to refresh your memory you would know that i'm quite okay like many of the pastors we got a certain level of iq so i never fail exams <laughs> until i went to university first term first year bang fail an exam in the old days before phones you don't get your results here do you get your results here now i'm not sure in university You had to still walk to the university on a notice board, but thank God, it's a number, not a name. So I read my number, bang, fail. I was walking back. The moment I saw fail, the first thought wasn't me. The first thought was my father, who had borrowed money to send me to study for my future because he couldn't see a future from where we came from. And what would that do to him? What would he say to his friends over in the Kopitiam, in my house. What we say, my son is doing well. Should I tell him? Should I not tell him? So I felt like a loser. Then I thought, maybe I should just run away. Maybe I should, bang, split second. Maybe I should just end it all. Then I bump into my Australian friend in the same course. So I ask him, how are your results? Pass everything, fail one. Which one? Same subject. What was his immediate response? It's good. Now we can go to, to the beach more often for the next term, together. See, when an Asian, a Singaporean, a Malaysian, a Chinese, an Indian, we, we fail an exam, it's the end of the world. For a Westerner, an Australian, he fails the exam, it's more time at Bondi Beach. There's no shame in failing. But if he doesn't get into the cricket team, if he doesn't get into a certain sports, that's a shame. We all have different shame and honor systems, and then you pull it down into your family. As simple as in your family, I don't know what kind of father you are, what kind of mother you are. You, your son drops something. We're oh, so clumsy. You're born clumsy like your mother, no? I hardly crash into anybody. <laughs> Bang! It goes in. For the rest of his life, he did not drop things. She cannot drop things, and all those things build up to our mental well-being and our mental wellness. And so it's very important as we go through different seasons of life and face different milestones for ourselves and our children. So my plea is, please understand what's your shame and honour system. What's yours? What's ours? And we're going to end by exploring this a little bit more. So we can show the PSL thing that we send around our leaders. I think one of our leaders. So for the results, please be present. We should have sent this around. I think most parents were present. They were there before the children. Then please celebrate the efforts. You know how much effort has gone into this? A lot. At 11, 12 years old, a lot of effort has geared into this for the ma- majority of us. And then don't compare. So I hope it's not too late. Whatever the results, just go out and celebrate. Huh? What do you just say? Whatever the results, whatever school they're going to, just go out and celebrate? Yes. Because that's the experience of being saved by grace, not saved by works. If you only celebrate and give a gift and give them a holiday after they have achieved a certain standard, it is salvation by performance. And when from young you inculcate salvation by performance and works, you're going to create a whole world of anxiety because the person never knows whether they have performed enough Not simply in exams, but beyond exams into every area of life. I can say that to you, friends, personally and pastorally. That's a huge thing. And don't compare. Be comfortable in what God gives you. And even the term, some of us are fast starters, quick learners. Some of us are slow starters. Fast, slow are not the frameworks we use. We are just different. You want to turn to each other and say, we are different. Are you there? And God made us different. Who made us different? God didn't make you a cookie cutter. And if you are a cookie cutter, there will only be one class of people in society. Wouldn't that be frightening? Only one class of people. All doctors, no patients. (laughs) How can? Some of us have to be patients. (laughs) All lawyers, no clients. All rulers, no followers. We all wired differently. Everyone has a part to play in not the world's economy, but in God's economy. And the sooner I realize as a parent that my ultimate goal under God, my ultimate responsibility under God is not to produce the next worker for the economy, but the next worshipper of God. I must always work that out in my life. What is it I really want for my children? The next worker for the economy, Babylon, wherever we find it, or the next worshipper of God. We've got to get this right. Then if he's a worshipper of God and a follower of Jesus, then he can be a good worker for God wherever we are, from Singapore to Shanghai to San Francisco. So, shame and honour systems. We carry on. We now explore suicide. Is it the unpardonable sin? Especially for those of us who call ourselves believers. How could he or she be a believer? How do we distinguish the last action, suicide, from the life journey of this person? And over the last three, four months, huge things have happened. And because we live in a globalised world, the pastor of a huge American church took his life. And then one of the great counsellors of America in colleges, colleges, who implemented state-of-the-art intervention strategies for mental unwellness, in between conferences, he took his life. That devastated the college community. He who was at the forefront of thinking of this, how enough could he? And so we try not to put this in the news just in case they are copycat, because there are many things that globally, instantaneously, we look at and say, I could go down the same route. So how do we distinguish the last action from the life's journey? What led to the last action? Was it mental unwellness? Was it depression? Was it unrelenting mental onslaught that I, I don't want to think about it, but I think about it. And so I finished the sermon yesterday, and this young man comes up, brilliant young man. We have known him from young. I said, can you please work that out with me again? And then finally he said, I've had this all my life. I've had this from young. I've had this from young. I just can't stop the thoughts. But I know I'm not endangered by this. But there are some people who are endangered by this. And you're so good just listening to him. I never guessed that from him. I knew he came from a difficult circumstance with his parents. And so can a Christian be so overwhelmed by despair and so blinded temporarily so as to do this? And so we keep asking more questions. The last action. Is it the main or the only decisive factor of a person's past life and a person's eternal destiny? You see the question we're asking there? Can this one moment define and change everything? That, that, his, that he actually believed in God and Jesus at all, and that cancels him going to heaven. And we are saying that we really don't know. We are pleading humility, because it's not as simplistic as that. So could it be the main, the only, or is it a factor? The factor and the only are different to it is a factor in this. And so, the last section and life's evidence. Now I will remind you, brothers, this is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice, I bold it, there seems to be a condition to it, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So the doctrine of God saving us, the teaching of God saving us, the teaching of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, includes the doctrine of perseverance. That as God sanctifies us, makes us more and more like Him, before Jesus returns, we are called to persevere in our faith. But if we give up and no longer believe, Paul warns, that's a no-no. But here is the qualifier in regards to the world that we live in. In the world that we live in, That is full of Satan and sin. Ours is not a perfect perseverance. Ours is a pain and perplex perseverance. You and I don't have perfect marriages. We don't have perfect children. We don't have perfect parents. We don't have perfect jobs. There are always tensions and frictions. And to hold on to Jesus and believe that Jesus is in control of this messed up marriage, in control of this child that is veered from God, in control of this parent that is, that is so hardened. Though I shared the gospel with my father for 30 years, he still doesn't want to believe. Ours is not a perfect perseverance. Ours is not sinless sanctification, but suffering and scar, as we grow up, as we grow old, as we grow sick, as we die. We do struggle, is Jesus the way? So we need to understand this. How to lessen the last act of suicide and how to increase the life of faith? How to lessen the last act of suicide? And this I took from John Piper's ministry. And he wrote in the wake of a suicide that rattled America. Robin Williams, comedian, the man who made millions of people laugh around the world. Right, as Mock and Mindy, you just ask the older folk. And then many other movies, Robin Williams. When he took his life, it devastated America. How could a man with so much laughter and joy do this? So John Bloom writes about our grass at being God. In Genesis chapter 3, God said you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve fronted up to that tree... Under Satan's temptation, she saw that it was good to make her wise. She took it, and that began our life of rebellion and sin. So, we don't have all the answers. It would seem that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the only one who had the right to it, the prerogative of knowing good and evil, and able to handle it and turn evil into good, is God and God alone you and me when we enter and know good and evil we can't handle it neither can we turn evil to good it's outside our domain so i think in one of his sentences or his, his title of his article was hand the fruit back it's not good for us to to know everything we can't know let's hand the fruit back to god and what do you think so we hand the foot back as part of us grasping at our own wisdom. We overreach into God's territory, thinking that if we, we know everything, we can control everything, we can master everything and turn it. And then because we step into God's domain and try to be little G gods of our life, we overthink. We overthink our own life, we overthink others, we overthink when others wrong us. What's going on in their heart? What's going on? That drives you nuts. Drives me nuts. When you're overthinking what your boss could do to you, your colleague could do to you, a husband or wife could do to you, then we overcompensate with what we think and what we say and what we do. And sometimes when we cannot bring things under control anymore, it's over. And that could be one explanation to put in another piece of the puzzle for us. We need to hand the fruit back And examples of handing the fruit back in the Bible are passages and persons like this. The consequences of our unbearable burden of forbidden knowledge. We give Satan, not God, more say over us, and we see more than we can cope with, and we know more than when we cope with, and then we try to act out of what we should not have known. So in Job, Job had lost his prosperity, he had lost his children, And finally, he lost his health. And all throughout he was asking, Why me? I'm a man who fears God. I should be blessed. Why should I be minus instead of plus? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsels without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You know what Job is saying here? You know, God never gave Job an answer, but God just spoke to him, and in hearing God speak, that was his answer. He had no answer to his losses, no answer to his pain, no answer to his suffering, no specific answer, but the fact that God spoke was enough. And we call this a a merciful mystery, a merciful silence, that you and I are not programmed To know all things. When we want to know the answers to all things, we get ourselves into a rut, collectively and personally. So, how to increase the joy of the life of faith to counter the last act? And so, balancing godly empathy and godly encouragement. Suicide is not genetic, not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by the individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is truth. I dearly love my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful and not righteous. Who would speak such a statement? It was, it was spoken by Julie Gossack, American woman, a wife and mother who had just suffered the suicide of five family members. No matter what, we can't blame it on genes. No matter what, I can't blame it on the curse. It's still the choice. That is from her perspective, trying to work this out five times over. I remember hearing of the suicide of our suicide, of the first Christian leader here in Singapore. And when I first heard that, I said, is this true? What happens now? What happens now as we go to the funeral? Carry on. Suicide may feel like the only way out, but scriptures tell us that God will never lead us into a situation where we're violating his commands is the only option. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when we'll you go back and read it. And this is John Bloom again. We do not help struggling saints, struggling believers, Christians, but refusing to tell them that suicide is displeasing to God. Lovingly spoken may be one of the means by which God jolts the suicidal soul back to better and to godly thinking. So we must still go forth, and along the way prayerfully, lovingly, gently, patiently, journey with people. And finally, theologically, it's not how we die, but how Christ died. We are saved by the blood of Christ, not whether our last moment was triumphant or last moment was tragic. And so it's not the last moment that determines my entire life. It's not my last moment that determines my eternal destiny. It's the life and the death of Jesus, not how we die, but how we live under Christ. So suicide should not be lightly dismissed. It's unimaginably painful and displeasing to God. But for the truly repentant, for the truly believing, for the truly justified child of God, all their lives, I've seen evidence of this through through his children's church days, through his youth fellowship days with us. God is greater than our sins, even ones that grip us in our dying moments. As I say this, you mustn't hear me say, either either extreme, One, the purest view that murder and self-murder is wrong. Absolutely, that's the the only view. Neither am I promoting you to think of suicide as an acceptable thing. And that's why we preach with all our hearts, trying to be truthful to God's Word, truthful to living in a fallen world while we journey from Babylon to the New Jerusalem. So you would have heard of our pastors sharing of their own lives, of Adrin sharing about Ashley, how when it popped up we didn't know what it was but he spoke to me a bit and said cannot discount the medical dimension of things maybe we have to check it out and then we heard from pastor kenneth when he was preaching and he's sharing like reverend john thing a good number of us have undergone depression depression is a disorder is an ailment is not sadness escalated to depression the two things are different and we, if we do med- need medical help There is no stigma. We are preaching this with all our hearts, that there is no stigma. Can you help me? I have these ideas. And holistically through the studies, we are trying to do this as best as we can so that that in this issue of of suicide, that this one last moment doesn't cancel this life of faith, neither does it cancel eternal life. And that's the approach, that's the the attitude some of us take. I think I find myself here. I don't have all the answers. I'm pleading my humility before you. But as and when we have to face it, I might as well speak to you now and plead with you that we don't have to be crushed living in Babylon. We can go and live under Jesus. Finally, I have to skip a few slides You keep going on, I'll tell you. Okay, here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said, If anyone would come up to me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow follow me. You know what Jesus is saying? Deny yourself the things of Babylon, the wonderful idolatries and adulteries of Babylon that look so glistening and look so utopian and look so paradisical, this wonderful pain-free, problem-free life that will never be in your human experience. You deny yourself. So we must take on board the joy of missing out in this world. And the joy of being included in God's kingdom. Right? So, what's the joy of missing out? The joy of missing out is my wife Mona says this: everybody wants to be first. Has anybody thought of being last? For you to be first, somebody has to be last. What? Are you there with me? Only one person can be first in anything in life. And the rest of us are number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Is there anything wrong? Who ranks you that way anyway? So the joy of missing out in life and the joy of being included in God is very important. So I may miss out on my choice goal. That's all right. I may miss out on so singleness, marriage. I miss out on marriage. My family of 12, one sister is single. She is the most contented single person I know. She wears a singleness in her heart and on her sleeve. And that's very important. Doesn't think, I missed out, I missed out. When she sees us having our problems, hang her, hang her. <laughs> it's not a comparative thing, but she's just so thankful. She uses the time with BSF. She disciples people. We... The joy of missing out, I just want to leave that with you. What is it that you have marked in your own heart that you die, die must have? And if you miss out on that, you are not complete. And some, if not most, if not all of us, are sitting down here thinking I have missed out. And finally, spot the difference between the world that Jesus offers, the joy of missing out of Babylon, and what the world offers, the shame of missing out. How do you miss out on this? How do you miss out on a promotion? How do you miss out on this? Co- joining the top three firms, the top three hospitals, how on earth did you miss out? And then the words of that song sung by Queen, I want it all and I want it now. I want it all and I want it now, is a lie of Babylon under the greatest liar in all eternity, Satan. The one who comes to offer us truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we present to you. Denying yourself, taking up the cross and following Him and living the full life that Jesus gives you. May God by His Word and His Spirit in fellowship with God's people empower us to live this way. Let's pray together. Grace us, enlighten us and empower us to confess and confess more willingly and quickly for our own good for Your glory that you are so easily tempted by the Babylon's of this world but the spirit of autonomy and the idea and the hope that we can indeed create paradise without you. As we listen to your word and your word draws us to your son, we know that that is a great lie. And as we live in this world with our fallenness and our sinfulness and our weaknesses, we do cry, we do moan, and we will die no matter how much we delude ourselves. So we thank you for your Son, who has come as the Good Shepherd to your people, saying to us, come out, come out of Babylon. And so as we journey, with very pain and perplexing sanctification, with very pain and perplexing perseverance, please strengthen us and encourage us in fellowship with each other. So as we end the year, Having listened to your word, having studied your word, we pray that we will listen to you and especially in the Psalm series from Psalm 42 on depression to Psalm 51 on our sin to our depressions and anxieties and addictions and now on suicide. Make us as your people, Christians, followers of Jesus, a shining light in this area that we will not be overwhelmed and crushed by the spirit of this world but we will overcome by believing in Jesus and listening to His voice. So help us to gain the joy increasingly and experience the joy of missing out in this world and this life and being included in your kingdom and the eternal riches we have in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' mighty name, we always dare to pray. Amen.